Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome back, everyone. It's episode 54, and I'm recording this on the 27th of May 2021. It's been another busy couple of weeks, with in-depth preparations to moderate two panel discussions on education for the circular economy for UNESCO's Conference on Education for Sustainable Development. There'll be a recording on YouTube, and I'm doing a follow-up article for UNESCO. I'll let you know the links when they're available. I'm involved in panel discussions for the Global Sustainable Supply Chain Summit on the 8th and 9th of June, discussing what circular supply chains look like, how they improve resilience, and how companies can get started. I put a link in the show notes, though I think free early bird registrations have now closed. And I'm doing a roundtable on the circular economy as part of an event called A Journey to a Sustainable Supply Chain with ESSEC Business School in Paris. The live stream is on June the 23rd, 2021, free to everyone, and I've included the registration link in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. And the last bit of news from Rethink Global is the launch of our Linear Risks Guide, available as a free PDF. We created a 23-page guide and a shorter linear risks matrix for our coaching clients and we've decided to share these so you can use them to review the risks facing your business and then think about ways to avoid being vulnerable. We focused on the risks related to our modern take make waste linear economy. We look at risks related to the markets you operate in, your business model and competitor pressures, your production and supply chain operations and regulatory and legal factors. We've mapped the risks along the value chain using pestle analysis as a structure. And to give you a snapshot view, we've also created a summary matrix with over 40 different categories of risk and an example for each one. Visit the Linear Risks Guide page on our website to download the free PDFs and you can find the links in the show notes. Now on to today's episode, I'm talking to another awesome circular entrepreneur Louise Bailaveld, the co-founder of Lono in Côte d'Ivoire. Lono helps agro-industrial companies and pharma cooperatives to create value from waste by converting it into biofertilizers and biogas. Côte d'Ivoire is an important global producer of cocoa beans, cashew nuts, natural rubber and tropical fruits. And all of these produce huge amounts of agricultural waste when they're harvested. On top of this, the farms are often in remote areas, so it's a big challenge to find ways to combine compatible feedstocks and make the logistics cost-effective. We find out what drove Louise to set up Lono and where the idea came from. 
Louise explains how Lono has created three service offers to fit different customer needs. And we hear her insights on what it takes to succeed with a circular economy startup doing something most potential customers haven't even heard about. Let's cut over to the interview and I'll catch up with you later. Louise Bailaveld is the co-founder of Lono, a social enterprise in Côte d'Ivoire, Africa. Lono's main mission is to create direct value by transforming organic waste into biofertilizers and energy. Louise was born and raised in the Netherlands and started her career in the public sector. She moved to Côte d'Ivoire working as a consultant for an Ivorian company. In 2016, Louise started setting up Lono with her co-founder, Noel Engesson, as a side hustle alongside her main job. In 2018, she began working for Lono full-time, and in 2019, she was named as a Forbes 30 Under 30 European Social Entrepreneur. Louise, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Catherine. It's nice to be here. And could we start by asking whereabouts Leno is based? Paint a bit of a picture for us, please. Yeah, so um, Leno is based in Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Ivory Coast in, uh, in West Africa. Um, we have um, our main office and administrative office in Abidjan, uh, the largest city in the south of the country. Uh, and we have a second office, which is more of an operational office uh, in Yamasuko, which is about three hours from here. And there we also have a private laboratory, which is based on the campus of the university there. Um, but all our projects and, um, and clients are kind of spread around the, the, the country. So we are a lot in the field as well. But this is where our offices are based. Right. So quite, a, quite an expansive um, set of operations then, given that um, it didn't start that all that long ago. So perhaps... Um, we could start by um, asking you to explain what Lono does and what problems it solves for both people and planet. Yes, um, so Lono, generally speaking, is, uh, is aiming to valorize organic waste. So concretely speaking, we transform different types of biomass, mainly agricultural waste and organic household waste, in compost, biofertilizer and bioenergy. Uh, bioenergy... Um, being biogas, but also biofuel, like biodiesel, for example. Uh, so our aim is really to create uh, a sustainable economy based on biomass that is currently perceived as waste. Uh, so that is basically what we do. Uh, and we do so by, by three main paths. And that is, um, firstly, we have developed a product line for smallholder farmers and, uh, and farmer cooperatives. Uh, which we call Cubico, which is an equipment to produce compost and biofertilizer on a small scale. Uh, secondly, we provide services um, and, uh, and advice services to different partners that, for example, want to do a feasibility study or that want to map the availability of biomass. Uh, so we advise different partners, both in the agricultural sector, but also local governments, for example, on what is possible with uh, the waste that is available. And, um, and then thirdly, we uh, are involved with larger scale project implementation as well. So one example that is very, um, uh, that we're working on right now is the, the construction of a compost factory, uh, where we use household waste combined with other sources of waste that are available in that specific area. 
uh, and we aim to do so for a price that is affordable by uh, by a large part of the farmers here in Cote d'Ivoire. So really to produce for the local market. Right. So that's that's interesting. Three three different streams there. And just going back to the services stream, you talked about mapping the availability of biomass. So um, can you unpack that a bit for us? You know what 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 does that involve, and what what are the different kinds? Yeah, um, well, one example is, um, well, for example, the cocoa sector is very big in, uh, in Cote d'Ivoire. So there's a lot of, there's over a million cocoa farmers that all have a relatively small plantation, for example. Um, and the waste is available on their plantations, but they're very often located remotely with difficult access. So not roads that you can go uh, that you can go to by uh, by car, for example. So even though there's a lot of biomass available, it's very hard to do something that is too centralized because the transport of getting the waste to a certain point, already the first mile, is, uh, is incredib incredibly difficult. Um, so there is a lot, like everyone obviously sees that there is a potential because there's biomass available and we can do things with it, but the actual feasibility of that biomass that is available, that requires quite a lot of study um, on different levels, financial, logistics, um, uh, circularity, so also like do you want to produce something for the farmers themselves, for example. So that is kind of what we are specialized in. Um, but it could also be in other sectors. So, for example, biofuel for transport, what could be the most interesting way to have a green source of energy for vehicles, for example, and, and, and how can you actually go from an ID to the execution of it? So that is the type of studies that, uh, that we provide as well, with the aim to actually make it happen. So not just to have a report laying somewhere, but to, to generate that, that, that new economy. Mm. Yeah, that sounds sounds quite involved, and I'm um, trying to picture what what the uh, the waste might look like, and I'm kind of guessing that um, uh, the um, the cocoa bean might be similar to a coffee cherry, um, so that the outer part, the waste, is quite bulky, um, and what goes what's what's sold from the farm, the bean. Um, is tiny by yeah. uh, comparison with that. So, though, so the farmer would end up with a really high volume of, of waste that's probably quite acidic, so a big problem to not do something with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what uh, the waste is used for now, either it's just left on plantations, um, which is not that great for many reasons, also for attracting pests, for example, that can spread to the, to the trees that are, that are currently good. Um, but it also emits greenhouse gases when it drops in, uh, in a specific way. Um, so there's a lot of disadvantages to just leave the, the waste there. Uh, some people, both businesses and farmers, uh, choose to burn it to just get rid of it because it also takes a lot of space uh, because there's way more biomass that is waste than the product sold, as you mentioned, is the case for coffee as well. Um, but burning is, is done just out in the open as well, most of the time. And then there's landfills. So basically all three options that are used um, frequently now all have huge disadvantages, both for people's health and for planet as well, because it's, um, it harms the environment most of the time. Yeah, yeah it can be highly acidic, can't it? So, yeah. Louise, um, 
going going um, back a few years, your studies included sociology and international development studies, and then you worked for the European Union and the Netherlands government on development and foreign trade. So I'm curious to know what inspired you to set up Lono. Uh, you know, where did the idea come from, and and what made you think it could work? Yes, <laughs> that's an interesting one. Um, the idea dates back to 2010. Um, because that's when I met Noel, the second co-founder, um, and him being a chemical engineer, still uh, involved in the studies of chemical engineering, and me being in sociology and uh, international development studies, we had quite a lot of um, high-over talks on uh, poverty and global inequalities, uh, as students do, I, uh, <laughs> I think. <laughs> so um, we had a lot of these talks, and then... Uh, slowly started this idea of how we can contribute something to that um, from his technical perspective, but also his um, clear idea of the reality being from Cote d'Ivoire, and then my background in uh, and development studies. And so we, we, we slowly started this idea when Noel already had an idea like we should do something with the, the bio waste that is available. Uh, and it's his expertise, so he, he had some ideas on how to do that. And for me, it sounded like something very concrete and interesting to, uh, to put something in place that could completely be my vision of what development, as people call it, could look like. So um, there's obviously a lot of traditional ideas on development. There is, uh, there's the global structures that create inequality, but, but we kind of tried to, to set the, the, the shape for, for something that could contribute concretely in rural areas and reduces poverty for for the people that are at the beginning of, of uh, global value chains. Um, so that's where the idea started. But then there was years of finalizing studies and having work experience and, and me having that specific interest. I started to work for the for the Dutch government on these specific topics on um, development cooperation and global trade, um, and, which was incredibly interesting and I worked with very talented people but after a while I got a bit um, like I really felt the urge to do something more concretely and that fit better into my vision of uh, of, of, of this so-called development and, and value creation um, because as you can imagine working for the government remains quite abstract and uh, and I really started thinking more and more of this idea we had back in 2010. Um, so that was when in 2016, I moved to Cote d'Ivoire. Noel was already there for a year and then we kind of started this, uh, this thing that we thought of. Um, adapted obviously a lot of things along the way, but the, the mission uh, I think kind of remained the same throughout the, the years. And that's how I ended up here. <laughs> well, that's, that's a... I think it's just really interesting that you started with, um, you know, the problem to solve, um, and as abstract as poverty, um, and then you know the two things coming together, you, the, the you know the the joint desire to help resolve that somehow, um, and Noel's um, chemical engineering experience kind of you know coming coming together, and so back in back in 2010 when you started talking about that. Had you heard about the circular economy or did you kind of hear about that later? 
yeah, I think it was that specific term definitely came later. There was um, already quite some uh, something to do about sustainability, I would say, but the circular economy, that concept um, was presented to me a bit later. Um, I can't remember the exact moment. I know that the Netherlands uh, at one point included that term also in some of their policies. So then um, while I was working there, uh, circular economy was um, was reflected in some of the policies they had. Um, so it must have been there maybe. I'm not sure if earlier on I had already heard about it. Um, but I think that was when I got familiar with that, uh, with that idea. Yeah, I think... Um, it, it it was only just starting to to kind of come into the um, public domain as a, you know as a as that term rather than cradle to cradle or natural capitalism or whatever um, it kind of started round about 2010 but you know you'd have had to have heard it somewhere you know in a random way and thought what on earth is that um, so I guess there are still people <laughs> having that experience now. So coming back to Lono, um, how is this all perceived by local farmers and are you finding any barriers or challenges from the farmers? Um, yeah, so for, for small-scale farmers, I would say the, the main challenge is just to show them what works. So we come, we came to the conclusion, for example, that for some sectors and some sized plantations, composting is um, is the best scenario, but accelerated composting, so not the traditional form that requires a lot of physical effort and space and time and most farmers um, dealing with crops that go in seasons, it's, um, it's very hard to to succeed in traditional composting on that scale. Um, so we came to the conclusion that accelerating composting uh, and having an equipment that helps that process uh, would be ideal. So, um, so we have developed it, but then the challenge is obviously to show people that it works. So we have invested quite a lot in demonstration plots, um, in pilot projects to just give the equipment basically away and uh, are paid for by other people in the value chain by giving the opportunity for, for people to see that it works and what compost does. Uh, and biofertilizer, same story, because it takes quite some time. So it's not you apply today and tomorrow your trees are looking amazing. So it takes time. And that, that process has taken quite some years from our side, I would say. Um, but I think it's the only way because you can't, you can't sell something to farmers that they are not convinced of that it, that it actually works, which is completely logic, obviously. And, and what else has there been any resistance once you started to move to some of the, um, you know, the higher tech solutions? Um, are there any barriers or is it, is it just about the logistics and the, you know, how, how do we get this bulky um, waste product um, mixed with the right other types of wastes? And, um, or is there, is there any, any concern coming from the farmers about high tech solutions? Um, yeah, I would say the general concern of high-tech is that it's often too expensive. Um, so we call our products low-tech because it's quite simple, but, it's, uh, but it, it serves a purpose. When we go to more uh, larger and industrial 
projects and obviously the technology involves. There, the main barrier, I would say that there is no showcases. Uh, it's a relatively new domain. So even, for example, a large-scale biodigester, I can only think of one in the country. Um, so even creating a biodigester or doing something like uh, production of biofuel for transport, there is no other example that you can refer to. So other than just preparing your own project, project and preparing all the logistics and financial planning and everything that comes with it, you also really have to prepare the market on, on all levels just for the for the introduction of a project like that. So um, so that I would say for larger scale projects, it's quite a, it's quite a challenge, which is why we also got involved kind of out of a need in those feasibility studies and uh, and advice services that we do, because it's it's absolutely needed as a step to get people convinced that something like that can work. Because um, we could also do the feasibility studies just for ourselves, but there were there was some interest in interest from different parties, including government agency, development agencies, private parties as well, to, to do something like this and to be actively involved in those studies and provide expertise on, uh, on ensuring the feasibility of, of project designs is something that we got involved with uh, in order to prepare the market and the, and, and the people and the parties to be ready to receive such a project and to actually come to the implementation of it. Mm. Yeah, because I guess um, if you can picture the the um, uh, the bell curve that's called the product diffusion curve, so you've got um, you know innovators and then early adopters and then um, uh, early majority. So certainly in the in the UK, there wouldn't be many farmers who would naturally be in the innovators and early adopters category. They're, they're all quite conservative with a small c. Um, and I guess that's probably the case for farmers, you know, in, in, in most countries around the world. Um, so yeah. Yeah, having having a solid business case and being able to show them somewhere um, where this is this is working. Um, you know, yeah. uh, the, the more you're able to do there, the, the faster the, the trust, I guess, will um, will grow. Um, yeah. And, and, and what kind of thing? What other kind of things have you struggled with, um, and what surprised you in the in the process of building Lono to where it is now? Um, yeah, there were many things along the way, you know, many obstacles. I would say, uh, I would say, from a business perspective, um, starting a company, a growing company, uh, cash flow remains a recurring uh, challenge very basic, but I think we all struggle with it because uh, you can have like paying clients, paying projects, but um, in the end, the, the exact payments are not always that reliable or on time. Um, and especially when you grow, you have to make sure that every month you pay your bills and you continue to be able to invest in R&D, especially in our sector and, and to prove these things, those demonstration plots and uh, and the expenses that come with that. Um, so, to, so you can have all your financial planning that you want, but if at the end of the month, month you're too low cash flow, you have a problem. So that is something very basic that uh, I didn't expect before to, to be such a challenge quite continuously throughout. Uh, luckily, we managed, but um, I see it with a lot of companies around us as well in this context that... Um, uh, that it's just a recurring challenge. Um, 
more on a personal level, I would say that um, that having a business never stops. So it's a, it's there always, twenty four seven, and there's no pause. There's nothing. It is always there. And um, my son was born in August, and I think it's quite comparable. Like it, it doesn't go away. Once it's there, it's there. <laughs> so uh, so that was more on a personal level. But maybe also the the fact that starting a company, you you are it's one big journey outside of your comfort zone because you have to do so many things that are outside of your domain of expertise, including contacts with the tax office, accounting, uh, HR, personnel, things. Um, well, so for me, it also came with learning a new language and a new working culture being here at Cotivar. So it's, uh, it's been quite a, quite a journey outside of what I'm used to do. Um, but then again, that makes it extremely fun and, uh, and challenging in a good way as well. So, um, so I would say those were the things that uh, that that at least that were challenging and maybe more time and energy consuming than I expected before starting. Uh, but that also made it a very fun ride so far. Yeah, and I think it's not to be um, underestimated, is it, that um, you know working for yourself is is nonstop and. Um, and working in a small business means you've got to be um, have multiple skills and there are all sorts of things that in a big business there'd just be somebody to do or some supplier to do and suddenly you've got to um, work out yeah. how on earth to, to get started um, and as you mentioned um, you know Noel's just taking his first holiday in uh, four or five years was it um, so um, so yeah that should bring it home to people that um, you might start something as a side hustle, but you know it, it quickly becomes, um, you know, more, more or less um, your whole your whole life. So, what what about your plans for the next year or so, Louise? What's in the pipeline? We have um, one large scale project we work on the the um, uh, factory for compost and biofertilizer production that runs on its own energy produced through biogas from, from waste. So it's a, an energy neutral factory for compost and biofertilizer production. Um, and we're now concluding the, the, the planning and designing phase. Um, so construction is happening this uh, starting this year. So that is one of the things that is very exciting. Um, we have also finalized, um, well, not all, there's still some pilots ongoing with our products, the Cubico. Um, so there is a lot of projects that are now getting the results, the long-term results on the effect of compost and what it particularly contributed to farmers uh, and having their feedback after a couple of years of using it. So that means that we are now very confident to scale up the, the production and the sales of Cubeco. So that is one other thing. Um, and then we are trying, um, at, at the moment we're in the process of also setting up a European branch to further develop our uh, research and development activities. So to, to, to better be able to research the options to link low-tech and high-tech, for example, to come to solutions that perfectly fit the context we work in. Because a lot of things are already known and out there. There's a lot of technologies already available, but um, uh, in terms of, um, of adapting and adoption in the con in context we work in, it definitely requires 
some uh, adjustments and that type of uh, R&D we plan to, to do in partnership with some European partners as well. So I would say that is the biggest things I had uh, ahead right now. Mm. Well, they don't so sound like small projects either, so I'm guessing it's going to still be 24-7 <laughs> um, for the next year or so. And um, what if you were talking to somebody who's thinking about um, starting a circular economy business or taking their business in a more circular direction, what would be your um, top tips or the lessons learned that you'd, that you'd share? What's the number one thing you'd want to share with them? Um, I would say it's to be very clear on why you start a business. Um, for us, that idea was, has started in 2010 and it kind of uh, stuck with us for the past decade. Um, so I would say that um, that having circular economy, sustainability, making a positive social impact, having that um, included and really fixed in your in your company mission uh, will have an effect in all the activities and decisions that come along the way. Also, when things get uh, rough, because <laughs> it's 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 those moments when uh, the true colors. Uh, come up so um so i think that if, if you as a founding team and a management team are aligned on what the purpose of your business is um that helps a lot in decision making uh, later on and to include this very clearly and communicate it also with partners and, and investors and um and maybe also clients and uh, suppliers to 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 get that uh, to, yeah, to get that message across, basically, because it's uh, uh, because it's with them as well that at one point you need to decide: Are we going for uh, maybe the easier option of fast money, or the more difficult option of sticking to the values that we agreed upon, and maybe having a longer, you know, needing more time to to reach our goals. Um, and those decisions will come up at one point and will be tough as well, especially when it's uh, when it's critical or it feels critical. So to be aligned with the people that matter, uh, internal and external, on, on why you do what you do, I think is the most important thing. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. But it's this kind of thing, isn't it, that if you're not really, really clear about the purpose of doing something and what's you know what's in scope what's not in scope you can end up with some very you know expensive mistakes or falling outs or whatever you know just over the the meaning of a word um you know yeah, somebody else describes sure. sustainability as like the wild west you know it's not defined anything goes <laughs> so um so yeah it's, it's that's so true so um talking about you know conversations and and purpose and values um, is there is there a value that um, that Lono has that you think is important and that you'd like to to share with everybody and tell us why you think it's important? Um, I think for us it uh, it all came down to to reducing inequalities throughout supply chains, um, especially because there is so much agriculture going on here in Cote d'Ivoire with the market being outside of the country or on other continents. So if you look at chocolate, coffee, uh, palm, rubber, there's a, there's a lot of products that are uh, partially or fully, uh, bananas, mangoes, uh, pineapple, that are partially or fully uh, 
grown here for export and for European markets. So for us, it all came down to how can we pull more of that value that is created throughout all these steps? How can we pull part of it back to where, it, where it's actually produced without replacing uh, current jobs or current money generating activities. So our, our intention was never to replace something by what we thought was right, but to create an additional value stream. Uh, and that's why we really focus on that, that bio waste that is currently completely unused. So um, why we also produce the, the products that we have is to, because we believe that farmers can do it on the side. So they are not um, completely taken away from their main activity of making a, making a living by growing things. Um, but they can just on the side having this income generating tool that supports them to, to just having that, that little bit of extra value. Um, so that is, I think, that, that was kind of how we started a decade ago. And I think that ID is really still there to, to make sure that value is, is reaching rural areas and, and there where actually the hard work is done um, without replacing uh, current generating, income generating activities. Um, so for me, I think that would be still the most important thing. And in, in terms of a circular economy for ourselves, it always has been about making the loop as short and, and small as possible and as closed as possible. Um, but one of the, maybe to come back to the lessons learned, is also that that perfect circle is very hard to start with. So, um, so for us, it was also about just getting started, learning to be an entrepreneur and running a business uh, and, and really get feedback from the people that were supposed to use our products because it's them that know what is best for them and what they actually miss in their daily activities. Um, and if that means, for example, for our products, we still have to use materials that are imported just because there is uh, way fewer industrial production here. So if you need steel or you need glass or you need anything like that, then um, there is no local producer, no local supplier for that. Producer, there are suppliers that import. Um, so, so we really have to balance constantly between is this still fitting our mission? What is the consequence of not doing it or doing it differently? And just constantly balance, like, is this still part of why we do what we do? Um, and that, 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 that means that maybe the circle isn't always as close as we wish or that there is, um, are sometimes unique things that come completely from outside. But to have that mission and to, to be aware of it constantly and with every activity and, and decision you make, I think is the most important thing. Um, and for us, that has always been uh, reducing inequality and creating value in rural areas of Cote d'Ivoire and helping certain industrial activities, because we could say that composting could be more of an industrial activity or biofuel production to, to, to help generate value in, in locations where, um, where that is not yet or not sufficiently the case. In our mm. Yeah, so you could even be fledging new mini industries, couldn't you, as, as the kind of scale of composting takes off. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting, isn't it? As you say, it's, it's difficult and, and, and not always possible to make perfect decisions, like sometimes you've got to rely on imported resources. Um, but being, being 
thorough in terms of thinking each of those decisions through allows you to highlight things that you can go and revisit later on to see whether, well, is there a way of recycling uh, scrap steel to make this, you know, as, as we scale up and get bigger. And um, so it's, they're not, they're not decisions that you're um, locked into forever and ever. They're things that you can revisit when the, um, when the time's appropriate. Um, so yeah, so thank thank you. That's that's um, really insightful about the the kind of ethos of the business. And Louise, is there anybody that you'd recommend as a future guest for the program? Uh, well, I uh, I recently there are many very inspiring entrepreneurs active here and. Uh, and between, for example, Europe and uh, West Africa. But I recently came across this drink and I was fascinated by it because it's made from cocoa juice, uh, which is currently also not really used as any in any commercial way. Um, so it's been thrown away most of the time. Um, and there's this new company called Kumasi that is producing uh, a drink uh, from that juice. And it's quite natural because it only has that juice with some combined with some water. And it's um, and then it's marketed in uh, in Europe, I believe. And yesterday was the first time that I was able to taste it because I heard about it a couple of weeks back. And then yesterday I uh, got myself a bottle from somewhere. Um, and it was extremely tasty. So I'm very curious. Uh, I don't know them other than that. Um, but because they are in cocoa, which is such an important sector in Cote d'Ivoire, and also in using in one way or another the waste that comes from agricultural production, I was intrigued by, the, by this new company. So um, me, myself, I would be very interested to hear more of their thoughts on the circular economy and their, and their mission and vision to start this company. So uh, they're called Komasi, but um, uh, other than that, um, I don't know much about them. <laughs> but that, that would be my recommendation, maybe for the yeah, for an upcoming. Yeah, really uh, interesting. So um, we'll, um, we'll we'll um, look them up and put a put a link in the show notes for people, um, and um, I'm sure I'll be able to get in touch with them. And it sounds as if that could be a good fit. Um, for a kind of complementary service for Lono, doesn't it? You know, I'm sure there'd be there's bound to be biomass left after they've extracted the juice from the um, from the is it is it from the the outer um, cherry around the the cocoa bean? Is that where it comes? Yeah, from? So yeah, so it's what comes from the yeah exactly what comes from the bean, and um, it could be well. What what I find interesting is because the juice can be used for other purposes as well. For example, uh, biogas production or any other type of um, transformational process but to make food out of it I think is very interesting and, and, and valuable as well because there's um, currently that's not happening a lot we have seen it with cashew apples in mainly in South America here it hasn't really to, didn't really take off but cashew apples have um, are very big compared to the nut that is hanging under it and it, you can make juice from that but for cocoa it's the first time I see really a brand made out of this type of juice for human consumption. So it's why, um, why I was fascinated by it. Yeah, sounds good. And I think, um, you know, there's, there's such great potential for all sorts of um, interesting food and drinks and, and cosmetic products and all sorts of things from um, what's currently being, being chucked away. So much value that, that we're throwing away, isn't there? Um, so, Louise, how can people find out more about you and, and Lono and get in touch? Um, well, through our website, which is um, lonoci.com. 
um, CI from codiva.com uh, or uh, well there's a contact form so uh, and some information on what we do um, but also through sending just an email to info uh, at lonoci.com and we're a bit active on social media mainly LinkedIn and Twitter and Facebook as well and I believe that is lonoci and Lono Cotivar for these channels but um, the website would be the, the most direct Excellent. Thank you very much. We'll put those links in the show notes so that people can look them up, up, look them up afterwards. So, Louise, have you got plans for a, a holiday anytime soon when Noel gets back, or is that is that a few years away? <laughs> I think I used because because my son was born, I, I had the privilege to have some maternity leave. But I think I kind of used my uh, my days off for the coming years with uh, with that. <laughs> well, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, um, the lack of holidays, you know, will be will be well worth it in terms of the um, the success of of Lono. It sounds like you're doing some brilliant things to, um, you know, really help pull some some value back into the value chain for farmers and other businesses across the Côte d'Ivoire. Um, and look forward to seeing uh, future updates. So thank you very much, Louise, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. I loved hearing that Louise and Noel had such a clear view of the problem they wanted to solve, reducing poverty and more specifically reducing inequality across the supply chain. At the same time, that was a broad and highly complex problem with so many possible solutions. Louise and Noel then used their specific skills and expertise to come up with a solution that wasn't already available. Circular economy businesses face similar challenges to most startups in terms of finances. Cash flow problems are probably the most common reasons for business failures. And when your business needs to fund R&D too, that becomes a bigger challenge. You might not see a return on that research and development investment for years, and somehow you have to fund that. If it's funded through a loan, you've got to cover the interest charges too. So it's important to do the numbers on that and make sure you've got enough income or backup funds to cover it. I liked Lono's approach of offering three different levels of service. The small scale equipment going direct to farmers. The services to help sort out the fundamental elements for bigger projects with Lono's team using their experience to work out the logistics, look for the best mix of biological waste streams, build a business case and so on. And then the third level, taking a project lead role on those industrial scale projects. That's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you use circular, sustainable approaches to make a better world for people, planet and your business. Get in touch via the website or connect with me on LinkedIn. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one or buy the new edition of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. Make sure you get the edition with the orange cover, 
which has a new chapter on packaging, lots of extra examples and updated research in every chapter. You can find resources and links mentioned in today's episode, as well as a transcript of the conversation at rethinkglobal.info, where you can find out how we help you succeed with Circular. Circular.